With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 14, where we finally broke down the forensics in this case, or at least we broke down the forensics that were actually analyzed. The episode, and more so the testimony, to me was very confusing. It was complex. There was a lot of different documents and source documents being thrown around that weren't all addressed in the actual trial testimony. So I know that uh, the little bit of social media that I've seen over the last week while I was out of town showed me that there was you know, a lot of questions and also some, some new finds that some of our listeners had on social media. So we're going to get into those. Liz was supposed to be with us today, but she has a sick baby, and so she's, she's dealing with her, with her son right now, so she's not going to be with us this week. And uh, hopefully this won't be too much of a mess. Uh, I, was, I was traveling this week unexpectedly. And then that unexpected travel ended up unexpectedly taking longer than I thought. And so we're very, very late and behind the eight ball in recording this. And I also haven't basically hardly seen social media other than those couple little things this entire week. So, uh, Mike, you're carrying the show today. Hey, man, I got your back. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first question comes from Jessica. Jessica says, was there a reason they did not take Liz's husband's DNA for exclusion? Yeah, I think the biggest reason as far as her husband goes is, I guess no one could see that coming as far as expecting the defense, the Seacrest to know that the the prosecution was going to raise the argument that it could have been her husband. I mean, maybe they should have seen that coming, maybe not. But the thing is, because... We don't know whose DNA it was. Barnett could have done that with anyone. I mean, she she could have said, well, maybe it was the neighbor's DNA, or we can't say that it wasn't the manufacturer's DNA, or we can't say it wasn't the clerk at Target's DNA. So 
I don't know that it really would have helped. I do think it would have went a long way if he was excluded. And and we have to understand that, you know, it's possible that it was his. That's one of the questions that uh, I wanted to ask Liz today, and she should be on in our next follow up. Uh, so we can talk to her a little bit about that. But I don't know if Anthony was ever around that game case or had touched that game case. But, you know, like much of the arguments that were made by Barnett at trial, you know, she she was she did a very skillful job of litigating through what was what was a mess by creating a lot of these potential scenarios and really, I think, driving that point home very well to the jurors, even though it means nothing. I mean, we, all we know is it's unknown male DNA. But to to end that with the potential of it, well, it could just be Liz's husband from when they were there a couple of months ago. Maybe he touched the game. It was well done, and it obviously resonated with the jurors. And also, listener Dan made a pretty good point here that should have been pretty obvious to us. He wrote, the quote, murder weapon was found in the tub with what appears to be blood on it, and the victim's DNA isn't found in the tub, and we're debating if he was in the tub or not? That's ridiculous. Yeah, I actually did see, I think that was a tweet. And it is a really good point, and it, it's kind of the same point I was trying to make in the episode, and I think he articulates it pretty well here. So basically what he's saying is the prosecution raised the argument that because on the two swabs that were taken on the, from the tub, neither of them contained Jim's DNA, they made the argument that maybe he wasn't in the tub. The argument that I made to counter that in the episode was, well, the first swab showed Sandy's DNA, meaning she's in the tub. But the second swab didn't show Sandy's DNA. It didn't contain it. And therefore, we know that not containing her DNA doesn't mean she wasn't in the tub because it was on the other swab. The point he's making is there's a knife in the tub that we know for a fact is covered in Jim's blood. Presumably, the towels in the shirt that are in the tub also have Jim's blood on it, meaning Jim's DNA is floating all over that tub. And still, the swab didn't show his DNA. Therefore, you can't really make the argument that because his DNA wasn't in that one swab or those two swabs that he wasn't in the tub, because we know that for a fact the tub was filled with his DNA. Kathy says, do we know if any of the unknown DNA samples were all from different people or are there two or more from the same person? Well, we, we know that the earring in the backpack and the swab from the jewelry box in the master bathroom did come from the same person. That's that wasn't just an unknown female. They referred to that unknown female as unknown female number one. Uh, they labeled that because it was a full profile and it was in both places, the same persons. There's also more DNA that matches that, you know, there's DNA on a doorknob in one place. It seems to be the same profile as DNA in another location, the DNA on Sandy's bindings. But the issue is. Uh, for any of you that went and read the transcript is we have multiple DNA reports and in multiple different analysis of the DNA. And I was only given one of those reports when I requested the file from the DA's office. So I, I'm kind of working blind on what the other one said, because some of the results do not seem to be consistent with the report that I have. And I don't know if they're, they're testing for different types of DNA. I'm really not sure about that, but I was told uh, by actually Sandy's attorneys that there was DNA of the same offender found or the same person found in multiple locations throughout the house, male DNA. And then, of course, we know we have the female DNA that was on the earring in the backpack and also matched the female DNA that was found on the jewelry box in the bedroom. Lisa says, was the DNA found on the video game booklet from blood or some other DNA? No, I think it was just touch DNA. So that there was two elements to that video game booklet or, or the video game case. 
there was a presumptive test for blood done on the outside of the case that came back positive. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, and I kind of misspoke on that a little bit because I said there was blood on the case. I guess we can't really say there was blood on the case because it was a presumptive test. So, uh, I mean, that's a test. It's, it's kind of like a screening where it says there's an item on the case that could be blood. Blood can't be ruled out. And then they'll do another type of test after that where they'll confirm whether or not that is or isn't blood. But that was on the outside of the case. Then they opened up the case. And I don't know, it didn't really say was the case already open or whether they had to open it. Um, but the booklet inside the case had what would be probably touch DNA on it. There was no blood found inside the case on the booklet, but there was DNA found. Listener Emma wants to know more about DNA. She says, is there a time limit to how long DNA would stay on something? And also, is it likely that once the object is handled by another person, the first person's DNA would be brushed off or wouldn't be detectable anymore? I think that different types of DNA have different, I guess, shelf life, so to speak. And I know, you know, there's lots of cases that are 25, 30, 40 years old where evidence is tested for DNA and that, that leads to a lot of exonerations. Um, but I think that that has a lot to do with how it's stored. If it's sealed and frozen, it'll last a long time. I don't think that there is an exact answer as far as how long DNA will be present on something. Because again, it depends on the material. So if you have like a large blood stain, you know, where blood dropped all over whatever this table or whatever it is, there's a lot of volume there that you can, you can swab into and get DNA off of it, as opposed to just touch DNA, which if someone dusts the surface, it's gone. Uh, as far as someone else touching it, Again, I think that probably depends on circumstances, and I know that we have some DNA experts that are on the fan page, so they'll probably address this after this episode drops, so maybe go there and check out the responses. But typically what happens, from my understanding, if so, say I touch, I don't know, say the the hood latch of a car, and then someone else touches it, and then someone else touches it, what you'll have is a mixture. Everyone's, all the those DNAs should still be there. You may have a major and a minor contributor, um, and that ha may have to do with who touched it last or who kind of scraped their finger against it. But usually, it's not going to wipe off the other DNA. It's just going to add to it. Ed says, I'm just wondering if the unknown female profile was the same on each item. It's not unheard of for items that don't go laundered like scarves to have unattributable DNA on them. What do you think? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, we we do have uh, a pretty solid profiles on the earring and the jewelry box, and that was absolutely the same person that left those profiles in both places. And right after I just said that, now that I'm thinking, uh, the word absolutely really shouldn't be used regarding DNA because it, it's never absolutely. So, you know, say there, there's 15 loci, they're called, you know, like locations where they're pulling different allele types out of a DNA strand. So say the the profile only shows us 10, you know, where there's maybe five of those that they weren't able to get enough information out of. Uh, so, so, so say that's the earring and then they pull the profile off of the jewelry box and maybe there there's only 10 or nine or maybe there's 10, but they're not the same 10. But all of the places where they had the same loci, uh, the same location in the strand match. So, so let's call them positions for lack of a better term. So there's 15 positions where they're looking at the alleles. And so in position one on the earring, it's a 1415. In a position one on the jewelry box, it's also a 1415. But then maybe position two on the earring is a 1718. 
position two on the jewelry box is unreadable. There's nothing there. Um, so, so if you imagine two charts kind of laid up right next to each other or right on top of each other, at the end of the day, what you can say is you can't rule out that it's the same person. But since you still have those few spots that are unknown, it's kind of like like lottery numbers. You know, if, if, if say, it takes 10 numbers to win the lottery, you got to match all 10. And you have your ticket, and for some reason, three of your numbers are erased. You can look at that ticket and say, well, it matches the seven that I can see, so we can't rule it out that this is a winner. But until we know for sure what those other three positions are, what those other three numbers are, we can't confirm that that, in fact, was the winning ticket. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jennifer says, could the DNA that was collected that didn't match the family members be eventually retested to be matched with a new suspect? Yeah, it absolutely can. I mean, that should all still be stored and the profiles are still available. You know, the, the full profiles in the reports, the ones that we don't have. Uh, that information is still available. So say we're able to identify a suspect through another means, through a witness or somebody, a snitch of some kind or some other evidence that leads to them, then they can take their DNA, compare it back to the crime scene evidence as further direct evidence that they were involved in the crime. Angel writes, just a point of clarification. In episode 614, Bob says that there was a presumptive test for blood on the game case that was positive and then went on to assert that it was a fact that there was blood on the case. But it's important to be clear that a positive presumptive test does not indicate blood, only a substance that might be blood, but could be something else that causes a positive result. A confirmatory test is required in order to say that blood was detected. It's a detail that is commonly confused. He says, unless I missed it, I don't believe a confirmatory test was mentioned. Maybe Bob can help clear this up. Yeah, Angel is exactly right. That's kind of what I was mentioning earlier. I did misspeak there, you know, the more I think about it, because the test that said there was blood there was just a presumptive test. It's just that kind of preliminary test. And I know I don't have any indication to know one way or the other if a confirmatory test was ever done to determine that it absolutely was blood. It's tough because, of course, there's no photos of it, you know, because we wonder in situations like this, why did they do a test for blood? Usually it's because they see something that looks like blood. You know, so it looks like there's a red blood stain on it. They test it to make sure that it's blood. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know, but that is an important clarification. Um, I said it earlier, but it's important to clarify again, uh, because I think I really emphasized at one point that it was the case that had blood on it. Really, technically, I can't say that there was blood on it because there was never that confirmatory test done. So thanks for pointing that out, Angel. Christine says, why doesn't the family get the safe tested for DNA? 
I understand that it can't be used in court, but if it produces the name of a suspect, then surely this person can be investigated. Well, the family could do that. You know, they could hire a firm maybe to come in and swab it and test it. But the problem is it's not just that it can't be used in court. There's literally nothing they can do with it at this point. During the direct appeals phase of the litigation here, even the defense attorneys no longer have subpoena power at all. It's not like they can take it and run it through CODIS to figure out who it matches. They would have a profile, but knowing they could only compare it to other known profiles. And since they didn't get any other known profiles to compare it to in this case, that's all they would have. You know, they could compare it to Jim and Sandy and the rest of the family's profiles to see if it was theirs. They could maybe find out that it's Jim's, which, you know, it likely is Jim's blood. He was There was bloody Jim two feet away from the safe. So it's it's whether they go through the time and the expense right now just to find out if it was or wasn't Jim's blood, knowing that there's nothing they can do with that information right now, even if they find out that it's not Jim's or anyone else's, uh, meaning it is the the killer's DNA. They they have no way of knowing who that is. They just have a profile. They have a, they have a bunch of numbers. They have no way to of finding out who that is. You know, at some point when we get into the habeas phase, they might. I don't know. I've never really talked to the attorneys about it. Yeah, it's something that can be done at some point. The safe is preserved so that they get it. But again, we're always going to go back into that chain of custody issue and the fact that the police never took it into custody. So it'd be a problem. Lauren says, would the family members who weren't DNA tested before be willing to be tested this time around? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't asked any of them. I mean, the only family members that I think would be relevant would be Liz and her husband. I'm sure because just from my conversations with Liz about it, she was frustrated that, you know, they made the argument in court, but they had never asked her for her DNA. She's like, I was right here. All they had to do was ask me for it and I would have given it to them. Uh, But the prosecution never made any attempt to get that DNA from Liz or from Anthony or from anyone else. And for good reason, because had they done that, it's a double edged sword because if they say the earring in the jewelry box, say they ran that and it did come back, that's Liz's DNA. Well, for the prosecution, what that does for them is they can say, well, that's the daughter. She probably wore that earring when she was here a couple of months ago. So that's not DNA from an unknown offender. Well, I guess that helps a little, but there's a bunch of other DNA in the house that comes from unknown individuals as well. That's not Liz's and cannot be Liz's because it's male. But the gamble they would be taking if they did that is if it comes back and it's not Liz's DNA, then they're in trouble. Because now they have just confirmed that that is most likely the intruder, the killer's DNA on the earring in the jewelry box. Very hard to explain how in the box containing stolen items in the garage has an earring with someone's DNA on it. And the same person's DNA is on the jewelry box that was rifled through in the master bathroom. That would have been an acquittal, 100%. So it, it wasn't worth the risk for the prosecution to do that. but. Getting back to the original question, that would be a question, obviously, for Liz. I don't want to speak for her, but I just know from our conversations that for her, there was frustration. Like, if you're going to make that argument, why don't you take my DNA and find out? Jennifer said, in the episode, you said there were a few different reports than the one you discussed during the episode. Are these reports of the same tests of the same items or different items? Also, are you working on getting copies of those additional reports? Yeah, so they were definitely testing a lot of the same items. You know, I first noticed when I was going through, obviously, in the beginning of the testimony, like I mentioned earlier, you hear Mac putting these reports into evidence, right? So he's, you know, here's Exhibit 22, here's Exhibit 23, here's Exhibit 24, whatever the numbers were. They were in the 20s, I remember. 
and it was the you know the the state crime lab, the Harris County crime lab. There was another crime lab somewhere in there. I think I think there was three. There was at least two, but they but they were talking about items, and and I noticed the item numbers weren't lining up with the report I had, which is the Harris County forensic report. So they would say things like, "All right, so in you know item number seventeen, it says da 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 da," and I'm looking at a report that doesn't have an item seventeen, or the item seventeen is something completely different from what they're talking about. That clearly came from another agency. They didn't really spell that out, but uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get the rest of those reports. I want to see what they say because the most confusing issue for me, or frustrating issue for me, was. As I've been studying these forensics for quite a while now with the the report that I have that's up on our website, and I even highlighted this particular part of it so you can see what I'm talking about, Sandy's bindings, that was huge. She has she the bindings on her ankles and the bindings on her arms. Both of them had unidentified male DNA on them, and it says that, that Sandy, Jim, Herman, Maria, Gerson, Marissa, Monica, everyone that was there was completely excluded. So they had enough of a profile for exclusion. They know that it wasn't their DNA, but it was on Sandy's bindings. And that is huge. And if you read the testimony with Matt Quartaro, you'll see that that information comes out when he's talking about the alleles. And then he mentions maybe there's some allele dropout, which that must have come from the other report, or there's a potential for allele dropout. But it was very, very confusing testimony. To me, and I, I read DNA reports often, I can't even imagine how it resonated with the jury, but I certainly didn't read that part of his testimony to say that there was unknown male DNA on Sandy's bindings where the whole family can be ruled out. That was, that was definitely not portrayed to the jurors, and it is definitely exactly what it says in the Harris County forensic report. But again, I don't know what that other report says. And I don't know how they, I don't think they contradict each other. I think they're just different types of, I don't, I don't know. And until I get the rest of those reports, I, I can't really say what exactly is going on there. Pamela says there's been a lot of discussion in regards to the white blouse and what was found on it. It seems there was no blood detected, but the report does not explicitly say so. Are you able to shed any light on this or is there more to the report that we haven't seen? No, you guys have everything I have on the white blouse. And I posted a photo of the blouse from evidence on the fan page this weekend for everyone to take a look at to see if anybody could find anything else. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what you'll see in that photo is a bunch of little circle marks on it. And speaking of which, in Sunday's episode, which is going to feature Jim Clemente, our next two episodes are going to have Jim Clemente working through creating a profile of this case. I think you'll find them very interesting. It's a long conversation with Jim and I broken up into two episodes, whereas it wasn't him spending months reviewing the case and just giving us a profile. It's more of a fly on the wall of you listening to Jim and I work through the profile together. And it's, it's super interesting. But you're going to hear a conversation about that shirt because in the photo, you see all these kind of orange circle marks on it. And I assumed because Carpenter said that he had circled the places. So he sprayed the shirt with a reactant agent and uh, there were areas that reacted as blood and he circled them. These are areas they wanted to swab. But in the photo, it almost looks like all these little ring marks all over the place could actually be blood stains. But it was so you'll hear Jim and I kind of talking about that. I just want you to know when you hear that that was recorded prior to us figuring it out this week that those are, in fact, 
circles that Carpenter made, those are all the areas that reacted to the reagent. Uh, because he says he used like an orange, I think, highlighter type marker or pen or something to mark those. And that's exactly what we see there. But I don't recall seeing anything where they said there was a confirmatory test done to see if that was, in fact, blood. I don't think they got any DNA off of the shirt. Uh, I've got to go back and review it. It certainly wasn't in the trial testimony about the DNA on the in the case. But one interesting thing is when we look at those circles, what we what we start to see is almost... Could it be a spatter pattern? You know, so it's it's not like the entire shirt is bloody. There's areas where it was more concentrated, and there's a whole lot of little circles on that shirt, which again leads me back to the idea that it's very likely that the person that actually did the stabbing of Jim Melgar was in fact female and was the wearer of that shirt. It's not guaranteed. A, a lot of theories have been thrown around that that shirt was just one of Sandy's shirts that was just used as cleanup. Uh, which is very possible. Uh, some listeners pointed out that there was a clothes basket on the the treadmill that had white clothing in it. So that shirt could have been there. Someone could have grabbed it, tossed it to the person that was in the closet that they wiped off with. So could be a red herring, the white shirt. We got to dig deeper into it and, and maybe jumping ahead from where you're at, Mike, but I'm going to go ahead and get into what we learned about the white shirt uh, that could go a long way to answer some of these questions right after the break. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So as I was traveling this week, I was looking through photos of the evidence from inside the property room at the police department. And there's a good picture of the shirt completely laid out. Uh, you can see the marks where the blood's on it. And, you know, I was looking at maybe this, this blood spatter. It looks more like, you know, there's there's little areas, but I don't know what the reactant actually looked like. Seems unlikely to me that it was used to wipe a blade down with, but again, still possible. But I thought, hell, I'm going to put it up on the page and let all of you dig into it and see what you can figure out. You know, we never know. That's why we do crowdsourcing, right? Is to see if we put all these eyes on and all these brains on every little issue, somebody will crack something open. And then the white shirt, it's happened. One of our listeners, Ellen, zoomed in on the tag of the shirt and found the manufacturer and the designer. And then reached out to the designer of the white blouse that was found in the tub and actually got her on the phone and asked her about it. And never in a million years would I would have thought this was the case. Usually, you know, you think that if, if a shirt's made, it's, it's sent to millions of retailers or thousands of retailers all over the world and blah, 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 all these things, right? Well, as it turns out, that particular shirt, that model, that color and particular design of that shirt was designed by her and manufactured only exclusively for Costco, which that is a huge deal. As soon as I saw that, I almost leapt out of my seat on the plane because Costco is a place that not everyone shops at. You have to have a membership card and you can't purchase anything at Costco without swiping your membership card, identifying who, in fact, purchased these shirts. Then we had a listener who actually worked for Costco and had access to their inventory system 
it was able to find out that they stopped selling that shirt in August of 2012. So just four months before the murder. And I think at this point, um, I'm way behind on social media. I don't think we found the start date of when they started selling it, but we're looking into that as well. So this is what this means. This is what we can do with this information, hopefully. And I'm hoping maybe some of you listeners, maybe there's some of you out there that work at Costco or know somebody high up in Costco. But what I want to be able to do is see if we can track down who in all the Houston area Costco's purchased that exact model of shirt in white, in size medium, during the entire duration that shirt was sold, which will be a far smaller number than if we were just looking at, say, you know, how many of those were sold at Kohl's across the United States. And then what that can do for us is, first thing we can do, if we're able to get a list, and the, the issue we have right now is, with it being in direct appeal, Sandy's attorneys don't have subpoena power. Otherwise, they could just subpoena those records. But we're hoping that maybe there's another way we can get it, or at least maybe get a number, how many of those shirts were sold in a size medium in white. And from that, if we can get a list of who actually purchased it, because remember, Sandy doesn't remember if that's her shirt. She was never able to say, it's definitely not. I think she said she doesn't think it is, but she's not sure. It could be. And then also, most of the shirts in her closet, from what we understand, are size large. That's a medium. So it doesn't seem like it's her shirt, but it very well may be her shirt. But it's a question that we need an answer to. What we do know is that Sandy and Jim Melgar were not and were not ever members at Costco, which means they couldn't have bought that shirt. So the possibilities here are that if that Sandy shirt, that someone bought it for her and gave it to her. And I'm hoping to talk to Sandy sometime soon uh, now that it sounds like we can actually hear her in her new medical unit. And ask her those questions because I know she has tons. If you look at the crime scene photos in her closet, she has a lot of clothing. And so the fact that she doesn't remember if she owned that one particular white shirt is not surprising. We do know that she said that the night they went out, she was wearing a brown turtleneck. That shirt, I believe, was found in the bathroom where she said she got undressed. So again, it seems very unlikely that Sandy would have been wearing that shirt that night. But I'm hoping that if it was a gift, that that might be able to trigger her memory. And if we tell her, did someone give you a white shirt that they bought at Costco, you know, and that may, that may trigger that for her. Oh yeah, I do remember so-and-so. But even if she doesn't remember, if we have a list of who bought that, our first step would be to cross-reference that list with anyone associated with the Melgars in any way to see if it could have been a gift. And then if there aren't any, if there's no connection from anyone who bought that shirt at Costco that has an association to the Melgars, then what we have is a suspect list. For the first time in this case, a legitimate evidence-based suspect list. Because if that wasn't Sandy's shirt, then that was the killer's shirt or one of the intruder's shirts. No question about it if it wasn't Sandy's. And we'll, we'll have potentially a list of names to work off of. And from that, any other evidence, just like the DNA we mentioned earlier, we can use to cross-reference and start connecting the dots and very possibly actually solve this case. Crystal says, did the Melgars have a housekeeper or any other female that worked for them that would have access to the home and know their routine? No, I don't think so. We could verify that with Liz or Sandy, whoever I speak to. I'm sure I'll talk to Liz before that. Um, we'll try to verify that, but no, I, I think that's come up in our conversations before, and there was no housekeeper or anyone else that worked in their home. And last, we've got a couple questions from an email from Jack. 
First, he writes, wouldn't the dogs barking around midnight be a pretty good indication that there might have been an intruder or intruders in the backyard? He says, of course, it could have been other dogs barking or another animal in the backyard, but it appears that this could be a pretty meaningful indication of a home robbery. Yeah, and I've made this argument before, and it people have made a lot of uh, insinuations about the dogs, but one of the first things when I was was kind of reading the interview transcripts with Sandy and what she said happened was, well, the dogs were barking all of a sudden at midnight, one in the morning. So Jim got out. Well, why would dogs be barking? Maybe they were barking because there was an intruder. It, it, it just it makes sense. And I, we can't say that's what happened. But I certainly think it's an indicator that, yes, yeah, someone was trying to get into the house or someone was in their yard causing the dogs to bark that set this whole thing into motion. Next, he writes, it also occurred to me that when you discuss the lack of other DNA evidence on Jim's body, that a potential intruder was wearing gloves intentionally as not to leave any DNA during their home robbery. I agree with this wholeheartedly, although I don't see so much criminal sophistication here in this burglary to indicate that they were worried about DNA. But if this was, in fact, a home invasion for the purpose of, of robbery or burglary, then, yeah, I think it's pretty easy. Most common criminals know if you wear gloves, you don't leave your fingerprints behind. Very simple. And when we look at all of the evidence around the crime scene or the lack of specifically fingerprints, also, that's a lot of stab wounds. And as far as the person that, that killed Jim, it's not real typical that the attacker wouldn't have cut them their own selves on the knife. So I think these are, are indicators that the, the killers were, in fact, wearing gloves. And I also think that that's why there's a, a real high potential that the killers or, or someone in the group left their DNA behind on Sandy's bindings. Because the one time when you may want to take your gloves off is when you're trying to tie knots. And so that could be why there's DNA left behind there. Also, you know, you're dealing with scarves and cloth material not somewhere where the the average person would think that you would leave fingerprints behind. And really, you wouldn't leave fingerprints behind in, in tying up knots that way in a cloth item like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of indicators, in my opinion, based on lack of fingerprints, lack of physical evidence on the scene, that the intention was burglary. The burglars wore gloves for that exact reason. And then we have a couple of places where we do have some foreign DNA within the crime scene not just in the backpack where they thought they were actually going to be leaving with it. And, and those are places where, of course, there's knots being tied, which are hard to do with gloves on. All right, that's all we got for questions this week, but we have a couple of announcements. Yeah, so first of all, Mike and I are taking a week off next week. So you're going to have your episode coming Sunday, the first half of the Jim Clemente interview, and then we're going to have a week off before the next Friday follow-up and the next episode. Part of that is because we're actually going to be on vacation that week. Uh, we're going to be gone. A lot of times we try to pre-record stuff and and plug them into those times when we're gone so you guys don't have to go weeks without episodes. But we just there has been a lot of insanity with our schedule coming up lately. I mean, we had this, you know, I unexpectedly had to leave and go to L.A. this week. Uh, that was you know, I was gone for four days. We had some stuff going on here in the studio that we had not planned on that that just brought our work to a complete halt last week. For Thanksgiving, we've got a trip planned with my family, and Mike's got a trip planned with his family. And then we have the UK tour coming up, where I'm going to be gone for a week, uh, which we have to pre-record for that before we leave, so we don't have another gap. So 
we, we made the executive decision so that we can actually take a breath and stop working till eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, sometimes as in last week, uh, midnight, one in the morning. So we, we decided next week, we're just going to have a week off. We're going to take a week off while we're off. Um, so sorry, there'll be no episode next week, but um, we really need a chance to, to breathe and catch up. And that's going to allow us to do that. And then lastly, speaking of the UK trip, uh, I just wanted to make sure, let you guys know there are still tickets available for some of these shows. I don't think any of them are completely sold out yet, but I'm really looking forward to meeting lots of you guys while I'm in the UK. And so uh, the schedule is Sunday. I am going to be in Newcastle. And then Tuesday, I'm going to be in Edinburgh. And thank you to all of you who corrected my mispronunciation of Edinburgh last week when I mentioned it. Uh, I still maintain that the Scots spell that name wrong. And that's not my fault. Right. Right. Um, But so we're going to be up in Scotland and Edinburgh on Tuesday. Wednesday, we're going to be down in Manchester. And then Thursday, we're going to be in London. This tour is going to be about the West Memphis 3 case. So I'm going to be speaking about that case. And then there will be meet and greets uh, following, probably before and after. I'll be hanging around. I think they're all in places where they serve beer, which I enjoy beer. Becky's going to be with me. So come on out, uh, listen to the presentation, and then we'll all actually get to hang out and, and have a few pints together afterwards. You can buy the tickets at justkillintime.org. That's justkillintime.org. That's the organization that is bringing me out there and putting on all these events. Uh, the tickets aren't that expensive. I think they were 25 pounds, euros, some non-American denomination, whatever you all use over there. Uh, but So make sure, go get your tickets. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of you there. We are at this point about, looks like three weeks away from our UK trip. So hopefully we'll see a lot of you there. Hope you guys enjoy Jim Clementi this Sunday. It's a really cool conversation where we kind of work through the profile together. And then thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to take a week off. I know that you guys will all be very patient with us. And and uh, we really appreciate that because, you know, it's a it's a grind week after week because we do this show in real time, which is which is pretty unique to most shows of this type where everything's kind of pre-produced. So, you know, we we have to come in every Monday morning and start the planning process, the research process, the writing process, get the show recorded and then edited and then music on it, and then produced every week. And every little thing that comes up, which comes up all the time, really sets us behind. So this week off is very meaningful to us because it's going to give us a chance to just breathe for a minute and catch up. Thanks again, guys. So enjoy the episode on Sunday, and we'll be back for a Friday follow-up two weeks from today. Take care, everybody. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. 
And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. All right, why do we use software when we can just use this website? I don't know. I Like, I'm getting scared because... Pretty soon you're going to find some tech that's just going to like completely outsource my job as your editor. Right. I don't need Mike anymore at all. <laughs> it's well, true. Okay. Well, let's just start looking for a new job. <laughs> yeah. What's the name? Angel. You said him. I, I think it is a guy. Oh, okay. Um, why do you think that? I'm just curious. The picture, I think is a guy. The, oh, the picture. <laughs> it's his, yeah. His Facebook profile. Oh, gotcha. Or I hope Facebook so. Profile. Yeah, I need yeah. to go look now because I'm scared. Nope, you're stuck with it now. Here we go. <laughs> um, oh, gosh darn it. My dogs are barking and my wife is not aware that we're recording. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Jessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com.